The Higher Side Chats doesn't start with underwear ads or guilt-tripping donation pleas, nor would I ever commit the cardinal sin of podcasting and interrupt the flow mid-show to show you an unrelated sponsor. But the free first-hour episodes do have to start with a little PSA before we get into it to ever so quickly remind slash inform listeners both old slash new that you're about to get into what I'm sure is a great first hour of a high-level interview, but that means you're missing half the show. If you like what we do around here, get yourself a THC Plus membership and listen to the full two-hour interviews as they were really designed to be and as I know you would enjoy them most. Give a little and actually get a little more in return of the thing you're actually engaging with. Five episodes every month, plus forum access, community comments, downloads to all the closing cover songs, a plus show RSS feed to use with any private RSS feed supported app, and the occasional joint session bonus shows, which include the messages you might leave me about your own theories, experiences, or otherworldly encounters at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail. If you're not quite sure, if you just want to feel us out, or if you're only here for this particular episode, no worries. New first-time subscribers get a seven-day free trial when you sign up at thehiresidechats.com. Cancel anytime. Try it out, because it's so important to feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go. And with that said, let's get on with it already, huh? In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Once again, it's the end of the world as we know it, but I feel fine. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and with many mysteries still plaguing the minds of the curious after many moons, maybe it's our minds we need to re-examine further for answers, rather than the phenomena themselves. Because after decades of inquiry, it doesn't seem that the West has gotten much closer to understanding abductions, UFOs, precognitive dreams, spirit conjuring, near-death experiences, psychedelics, synchronicity, telepathy, remote viewing, astral travel, or anything outside of the pre-approved box. But the persistent attitude that if we just apply our superior Western logic harder, these mysteries will eventually submit, still remains a mainstay of even much of the alternative world. Well, as the great Gordon White says in his new book, Animistic Encounters with the Living Cosmos, for as large as it is, empire can be easy to hide. And when we reverse engineer our modes of thought and ways of thinking, we might find the flag of empire firmly planted in our own psyche, and that our birthrights of custodianship and embeddedness are hindered by the colonization of our own minds. Perhaps the thought processes that ooze out of Western life have us thinking that we're looking at some complex paranormal equation that just needs to be solved, when really we're looking at something more like dark spots on a map that we just need to let fill themselves back in. The case is certainly well made in Animistic, a written word whirlwind of Gordon's wizarding adventures in the old world prior to virus punk, and each story and experience works to build the animistic worldview and constantly catch the reader from falling back into the old empirical patterns. We all know Gordon well as the reigning champion of THC appearances, with this being lucky number 15, if my count is correct. From Gnosticism and alien ghosts to permaculture and pig-chimp hybrids, we have talked about it all. 
and it is a real pleasure to have him back to get into this latest book, The Animistic Idea Seeder, Certified Shamanic Healer, and Vasuki Sky Dragon Summoner, the Tasmanian Devil himself, my friend and yours, Gordon, good to have you back. It's good to be back, Greg. Do you spend more time on my intros than, than others? <laughs> I have to, because it's just hard to be creative I'm at running this Running out of shit. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's just another day yeah. at the office for me. I keep expecting them to be a three out of five. I'm going like, what what's left? But no, well done. Well done indeed. Good to be back. I appreciate that. Yes. And as expected, I really liked Animistic, which has such a great title too, by the way. But as the intro goes, it seems fair to say that this is a book that is something like a book about how to think and how insidious Western modes of thought have been. And that if we look inward for answers to some of these mysteries and just shed our mental baggage, we'll get a lot further. But it's your book. How would you frame it up? Yeah, that <laughs> when I sat down to write it, sort of faced with the, let's call it like the iconic carnival mirror maze, right? right? Where it's like, okay, so how do you, and we were talking about this before you hit record, how do you write a definitive book about how the production of books is not in fact a definitive way of conveying information in a more kind of inclusive or dare I say multipolar world, right? Like the book and the creation of a book comes down to us through this very specific line of a culture that literally built itself around the idea that one book is true and the rest of them aren't. And then it had an enlightenment and a devolution into scientific materialism. So of all the places in the world to try to convey something like truth, we ended up with this my way or the highway absolute truth model. And to critique it, the only thing, the only way we know how to critique it is to do like the things that you're trying to critique, to say, like, I must write a definitive book about how we cannot say definitive things because that's sort of part of the problem. So you get caught in these loops. And that's why the book is so, which we sort of mentioned, it's a bit of an Indiana Jones, Lara Croft, if you would prefer, adventure. And that's because it needs to be in relation to place and in relation to individual experiences because you have to relativize rather than make world-spanning statements to get the book to kind of be an exploration of the shortcomings of world-spanning statements in books. So there's this kind of like infinite loop in it, which I think we've mostly accomplished. So that was kind of what I sat down to do. Mm. And it was the most fascinating experience because you had to, the way the book is put together is itself part of the experience of the book, which I know sounds like crazy, and maybe it is crazy. <laughs> it is. You can just read it like a normal book for people listening. You can get from the beginning to the end. But it is a follow-on without being a sequel to Starship. So I talk about I'm developing a dot trilogy. So the first book is called Star.ships because it's a portmanteau and play on stars and starships and human navigation. And, and the same thing is in play. The Annie is a bit of a wink back to Starships because that's Papyrus of Annie. And so Annie.mystic. It's also any mystic or all mystics and you stick it together and you get animist, animistic, right? So even at the level of the title, reading the book hopefully takes you on that sort of relational journey. That's the story of the book or the beginning of the book. Nice, nice. Yes. Uh, deep and layered branding is something I definitely appreciate. And there are just so many interesting little 
threads about the ways we think. And one of them that stuck out to me is the idea of wiping the slate clean and getting a fresh start. And this is something that if I have conversations with anarchists, they tend to kind of want to have this kind of reset. And that's just never really been the case. Everything is a continuum. And even if something collapses, the people who build the new will have experienced the collapse, and so they're colored by it. It's just a weird Western way of thinking that if we can just get a blank canvas, then I can paint my masterpiece of utopia, and then everything would be fine. But that never really comes. No, and this is, so many books in the kind of like magic world, and mine is no different, have to do a sort of critique of the Enlightenment. And that's that sort of moment in European history where we sort of invent the past because what we do in the Enlightenment is declare that everything that came before the Enlightenment is superstition. And so the story of history has been this story of kind of getting cleverer and cleverer from a state of being stupid to the Enlightenment, which is where we discover that science is correct. And from that moment on, the rest of the future is this ever-improving and ever-ensmartening march into a better and better and more scientifically understood world. Now that is, and there have been plenty of famous 20th and 21st century thinkers like Bruno Latour who said, this is a dumb idea, right? Like we actually, it's branding, speaking of. It's an ad campaign for scientific thought to say, everyone who isn't me that came before isn't as good. And the only thing that gets better is via this scientific understanding. And what Bruno Latour famously said is we've never been modern. Like this is the idea that in the Enlightenment, we stepped from superstition into modernity. And from that point on, we just like science our way <laughs> into this ever glorious future. And this is the erasure of everything that came before. And it's just branding because as you say, it is impossible. But what it allows you to do is gives you a moral justification for moving out into a world that you think of as lesser and of no value. So literally expanding from Europe around the world to cultures that are by definition behind you and declined and in superstition because you have literally the enlightenment, you have the light. And so no one listening to this show would think that now. They're like, well, no, that's, we all know this is a dumb and kind of racist idea and it turned into empires and a global slave trade and all the rest of it. We know that. Very good, except what the book seeks to bring to the reader's awareness, which is, I don't want to explain or change people's minds, it is just that, is that's all good. It's, you are still operating because of how we've been trained and taught and so on. You're actually still operating in that modality, that framework of understanding things like the past and meaning until you decide not to and go on that journey. And the trick with that bit, hence where the book is a bit of an infinite loop there, the trick with that is that the framework of understanding that we inherited in this kind of imperial enlightenment sense isn't good at all in learning from other cultures and learning from other lifeways. So you have to do this like double, <laughs> double jump, which is to recognize that how we see the past and the future and, and meaning making as something that came down to us with very specific political goals. You have to recognize that. Most people will get there. But then it's the steps of like, okay, cool, but these are the only things I have that will allow me to attempt to transform that thinking. So the quest for 
what other techniques that are available to us, kind of like downstream from the enlightenment, so that we can learn better from other life ways. Because again, this process over the last couple of centuries with disciplines in the 19th century, like anthropology and then eventually archaeology, showed up to non-European worlds with this idea that the only things that are true are this kind of like 19th century scientific idea, and that comes with this notion of the past and so on. So when we even try to like learn from other people, we learn in a way that just reinforces the framework we're trying to get out of. And so animistic is the quest and exploration for ways that are available to anyone who wants to kind of like attempt that journey. And it's why the word animism is kind of implied in there, because I think that's probably the most dangerous word in academia for a lot of right reasons. I like it. I like it. Well said. Yeah, thanks for saying that before you get to the next question, because as we mentioned before hitting record, of course, Greg, you are the first interview I'd ever do for this book. But because of that, I mean, I handed this book in, the manuscript in like 11 months ago at this point. So I, <laughs> let's see how specific the questions are. But the point is, I'm describing the book fresh, and I'm, I'm hoping it's landing. Yes, I think it is. And I'm going to do my best with dad brain, but it happens to the best of us. And when we have talked about animism before, you gave an example in a previous interview of ours that if a banana wants to go to space, it would need to make itself appeal to humans. And I just really like these twists of logic. And it's a big part of thinking of all aspects of the ecosystem as alive and inspirited. And this is a few different quotes strung together to further make the point. But you write, Within indigenous knowledge systems, so-called invasive plants and animals are viewed as nations in their own right. Materialist naturalism prefers to explain why a certain species has arrived, but traditional custodians seek to build relationships with them. And why do you belong in the U.S., but the kudzu vine doesn't? Here we come to a crucial difference between materialist naturalism and animism. For animists, non-human persons have retained their agency. It is becoming clearer and clearer even to mainstream biology that the location of a plant when it was first described by a European has little scientific value or meaning. While there have certainly been some losses, the simple arithmetic demonstrates that the country is significantly more biodiverse as a result of the presence of humans, yet the majority of scientists still treat human impacts as external drivers of change and almost always negative change rather than integral parts of a system. And that is just an amalgam of things that I thought were great points to give agency back to the non-human world and drive home that humans are part of the system, not separate overseeing managers of it. Good stuff, man. Yeah, so, I mean, if you think about conservation as an idea, which again began in the 19th century, it requires a European mode of thought that separates humans and the human world as something apart from nature and the natural world. And this is that imperial notion I was talking about before, where it was politically necessary to think of the Americas and Aboriginal Australia as, in, as pristine, because if you had to kind of legally or morally entangle with the idea that, in fact, there are humans who have been there for millennia and you are taking their homes, the imperial project would hit some bumps that it otherwise didn't. And so we have this idea of human culture as something separate to nature, but crucially, 
out of that developed the idea of nature as some sort of delicate, fainting white woman that needed our protection, our conservation. And so we still use those terms today. We refer to things like a delicate balance, but that's actually not a good description of how the more than human world interacts with us. The more than human world can like weeds growing over um, slag heaps and giant humbled squid invading up the coast of California. I'm using invading deliberately here because out of this world of maps and what is clean and what is human and is what is not, we have this discipline of invasion biology, which is plainly racist. If you applied it to humans, you get the idea that people should go back where they came from. And not just that, but there's this line where it's like, okay, anything, well, everything was in the year 1880, let's just pick, or 1888 for Back to the Future reasons, but it's literally mid to the late 19th century. Everything that Europeans, wherever they encountered it for the first time around then, is where stuff belongs. And anything that moves <laughs> at that point is wrong. Humans, plants, the rest of it. And indeed, many people know this already, but the World Wildlife Foundation, all these kind of early 20th century conservation movements were eugenic. The WWF wanted, the guy who founded it was a eugenicist and a depopulationist and the rest of them. So all the kind of, the people we're dealing with today, and it's no surprise that they're using the kind of Greta version of climate change as their cloak. It's the same ideology. And it comes out of this idea that humans are not just separate from nature, but nature is this 19th century zoo where everything is in its exact little right place. And if anything moves, that's wrong. Now, if we look at the most studied example of how this isn't the case is the United States, because probably China has more now, but like up until then, it had the most biologists. And so there have certainly been species loss in the continental United States since European contact. But on balance and in places like Florida that are most studied, there's been sort of two dozen guaranteed extinctions and sort of like one and a half thousand introductions. And so the total biodiversity has increased. Now, does that mean this is not the same as to say humans are, it's not drill, baby, drill. This isn't to say that humans are living right. But what it is saying is this kind of weird 19th century invasion idea that this little plant belongs over there and that one goes over there. And there are such a thing as weeds comes out of this idea of the world is separate from us and fixed. This is the difference, the key difference between animism and say what I'm calling materialist naturalism for reasons that we can maybe get to, but let's just say the imperial worldview. When did nature stop is a question you ask. When did nature finish? Because according to the cosmology we were born into, that point was sometime around 1885, right? That was basically when nature finished. And then after that, anything that changed is not good. And we should bring it back to whatever that is. And you can tell an invasion biologist this, and they'll say, no, that's not what it is. And I'm like, but it is like, where is the model for understanding, especially as we move in, like, we're not living right on the planet, whatever people think of climate change and blah, 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 and it's used for an agenda and so on. We're not living right on the planet. And yet this framework of a fixed nature that we are separate from is being used to kind of further the agenda that got us here in the first place, right? So we, we're pivoting from our virus narrative to in between this war one to the climate change one. And the same kind of technocratic techniques of control and separation and a hatred of life 
which we apparently use to defeat a virus, <laughs> uh, will be used <laughs> to, to battle climate change unless you are flying on private jets inside Europe because they will not be taxed with the same carbon tax as others. And same thing for Wagyu. So this idea of a fixed nature as something separate to humanity is empire and we're sort of still in the effects of it. And even the people who, I mean, presumably those listening to a show like this are far more interested in ecological diversity and the rest of it. Even how we think with these ideas needs to be played with because we can kind of help in the wrong direction, I guess. Well said, yes. And for all that is good and holy, don't tax my Wagyu, please, Klaus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about Marcus Metaferro and the story of the Pa, because this seems to be a great example of how to work with a living cosmos and is a pretty good match for Field of Dreams and the logic in that movie. Yeah, I can see that. Once you allow spirits to be real, then a lot more stuff becomes communal, as in a communal act, as in thinking, building and so on. And that's a kind of key difference with how we create things comes out of this European theory of mind, right? Which is that your mind is trapped inside your head and the thoughts just appear there unattached to anything else. And if you are, say, an architect or an author or what have you, you have a thought and then you impose that thought. You have that thought unattached to any kind of other meaning or idea. And then you impose that thought on the world in the form of a painting or a book or a building. And this is weird because even if you think, which is dumb, but even if you think that that's how thoughts happen, a thought isn't something you have. Thinking is something you do. And you do it in the context of like you may be in a cafe, you may have had a fight with your lover the night before, you may be on site. Wherever you're doing it, it's already a communal act. Now, once you allow or understand that spirits are some kind of real and so are thoughts, then this process opens up and becomes the communal activity that it is everywhere else, and I would argue is in fact the case. And so Marcus Mataferro Lloyd is a friend of mine who is in New Zealand, and there's, I think it's chapter two from memory, I want to say. Yes. But he's a Na Ariki Kaiputahi member, and so it's in the southeast of the North Island is where it's kind of like ancestral lands are. And ancestral is one of those funny words because they do still live there and they live there in relation to the dead. And before all the restrictions started, literally a couple of months beforehand, I took some RuneSuit Premium members to spend a few days at the Par site and kind of the meeting land with Matafero. And the story of what he did, so a Par is like a Maori fort. That's the closest it's going to be. It's like a hill fort that you live in, right? And so where they lived at the time, Montefero and his family, was sort of next to, on this hill, beside the sort of sacred Mangatu River. They lived in like normal, modern, kind of, well, normal Maori accommodation, which is to say there's like a meeting house and all this kind of thing. But anyway, halfway up the hill is the par site for his family and his tribe from the 19th century, which was obviously no longer occupied by living humans. And he'd worked in Auckland. We actually encountered each other in Auckland media many years ago, which is a kind of one of those funny loops. And he came back to the ancestral lands. And for six months, he spent sitting out there looking down. It's this beautiful spot, actually, in the bend of the river up on the hill, looking down at the old past site, which just looked like mounds in the grass, because that's all it was after 100 years of being abandoned. And he sat there with his thoughts and with 
ancestors and so on, deciding whether or how one could bring this site long abandoned by living humans, kind of, this is the trouble. We say like restore it, but it didn't go anywhere. When we say we restore something, it means it's fallen away. But in a living universe, it's become a place of the dead. So it was never not his family's land. It was never not his family's pa. It's just that humans didn't live in it. And so how do you, even understanding something like history, how do you bring back, and this is so crucial because we do things like just cut the grass around a ruined church in England or something, but it's a ruin at that point. But these things aren't ruined in a living universe. So he spent six months grappling with these ideas and kind of got the go-ahead from his ancestors to what I describe as bringing back into a living context rather than restoring. And so you start cutting the grass, you start excavating things, all of his own bat, with his own money. And more importantly, in the process of doing this, ideas would come to him about, oh, this should go here. Or he'd, he'd have spirits or thoughts or whatever you want to call them in his head, say, in this fare, so like this house, build a pit of these dimensions and put hot rocks in it and then use a certain kind of local plant to... So they basically told him, in this fare, build a sacred steam system, right? Like you put the plants in and the hot rocks and you get in there and you sort of smoke it out. And he's like, that's a bit weird because he was unaware if there was any kind of like sacred steam, shall we say, technology in Maoridom. And then one of his cousins, who is a Maori historian, was visiting and he was showing him that. And he's like, oh, we actually used to do that. That's a thing. It's called blah. I forget what the word is. So... Marcus was finding stuff over the course of the doing of the restoring. He was getting information that we as humans didn't know at the time, but subsequently turned out to be correct. So what happens there is this is the difference between restoration and kind of like bringing back into context. There's a way of being and a way of thinking, which we have corollaries for in kind of like Western thought, hence the book, that allows for the dead to be back with us. And what happens when you operate from the perspective of a living universe gives you very different outcomes than if you operate from the perspective of a not living universe, where instead of bringing back into context, like if this was a government heritage project, it wouldn't have been rebuilt in a living sense. It would have been cordoned off and little signs saying, this is how they used to live would have been put next to things. And it would have fixed it in the past, but it's not in the past. It's a place of the dead and the dead are with us. And this is such a fundamental difference that in the book you can kind of track there are measurable outcomes from what we would call archaeology and restoration if they come from a place of a living universe rather than not. Yes, and great points. I like the stuff you say about ruins in the book, which is you know kind of what you're talking about now, is... The West sees something that was destroyed or abandoned, and we say, that's a ruin, and we put the police tape around it, and we just say, don't touch it, and that doesn't really even make much sense, <laughs> you know, with everything being in a continuum and alive. Yeah. But obviously, Westerners don't do a lot of deep listening the way Marcus did. How would we better know if we were offending the local dead or some guardian spirits on some land we purchased without knowing much about it or its history? It's easy to see why that's an important story and how this process works in his situation. 
but it's harder to apply these things to our individual situations, especially in such a crowded industrial society. Yeah, it is. That's correct. It is more challenging and differently challenging. The difference being that we, typically people will know. I mean, obviously RuneSoup has a premium membership where people kind of like learn magic and we do Q&As and the rest of it. People will send in questions if they're new to magic. That's something like, I think my house is haunted. And unless that person, and this is an even more fraught area of discussion, but unless that person is like mentally ill, then if you're kind of feeling something, this comes back to was it happening with Marcus as he was excavating this fare and being told by his own thoughts, whatever that means, to put in the stone steam system. If these thoughts arise in the doing of something, this comes back to the thinking as a communal process. You probably do have a haunted house Mm -hmm. is where I'm going with that. The challenge isn't like, do I know how to do this? I would argue that all humans do. We have to unlearn the idea that it's not true or that thoughts are like ephemeral and sort of like outgassings of a physical brain. Once you get properly past that, you're situated in, and a lot of people resist it for this reason and, and for good reason. When you step into a living universe, particularly in a, in a Western context, and there's a big part of my book about how I live in Tasmania, you suddenly realize, woo, there's like a haunted way of talking about things that are maybe understandably ripe for critique. Like when you talk about, you know, privilege and identitarianism and so on. These are an artificial machine way of attempting to describe something that is in fact true, which is that we have this uneven inertia of crimes and positive developments that by nature of just being human kind of flow into us and into our descendants. It's one of the reasons Cloud Atlas is one of my favorite movies because it's by each crime and every kindness do we birth our future, which is a better way of kind of than just like pointing at people and saying privilege is like, well, hang on, we're in the flow of a living universe and some real bad shit happened. And how am I in relation to that? Yeah. You know, I think reading this book has helped me with the whole idea of not hearing the spirits, because I think I've just been expecting it to be bolder and louder based on some of the stories I hear, like Dr. Stephen Skinner's story and that kind of thing. But maybe I'm not listening to the subtle signs well enough or expecting something distinct from my thoughts, quote unquote, like these thoughts are mine. These are consistent with my kind of logic and my personality. And I'm looking for something that comes in that is so clearly not. And maybe the flaw is, well, those other thoughts aren't really yours, quote unquote, either. Correct. Like we and this is that sort of fundamental hard problem of consciousness where we don't have a good material. We don't have even a valid materialist definition or framework for understanding thoughts in general, not even like predictive thoughts about the future or anything kind of cool like that, but literally thoughts. And that's kind of like 20th century stuff where there's no interiority of the molecules of the brain. And so the idea of saying that like thoughts are electrochemical processes in the brain, I'm like, that's a just so story, which is, by the way, an imperial invention. There's no way inside that at all. So, And it doesn't mean that every thought is a spirit, of course. And Aboriginal Australia has really good, particularly when it comes to dreams, frameworks of understanding. Basically, everyone but us does because they didn't decide thoughts were fake, right? Where you can kind of have big dreams or little dreams. And a human being as a spirit 
is a being that is capable of generating dreams, hence little dreams. But you can also have big dreams, which is to say dream encounters with thought beings or spirits. And our easiest and most available or invitational way into this idea, because the whole kind of point of the book is in the 20th century, when we realized that there were shortcomings in like the European theory of mind and framework of nature and all the rest of it, we did things that were with the best will in the world, not great in retrospect. We got a lot of cultural appropriation and like, oh, the Western world shit, I'm going to be a Cherokee medicine woman. And it's like, well, you probably aren't. It's probably not. It's probably a bit gross. And that's part of that same sort of extractive imperial process. You, you understand the impulse. You understand the impulse of the drive to recognize that the universe is alive again. And the point of the book is that we actually have available to us in a, dare I say, non-problematic way, thinkers and modes of being and modes of thought that can get us into that, quote unquote, something like approach of like non-Western lifeways. And, and the main one would, would, of course, be Jung, right, in the 20th century, the 20th century's best wizard. And in particular, what he admittedly did call his descent into madness, but the creation of his Red Book. Mm-hmm. And so he would kind of drop into his own thoughts and have this process called active imagination when he'd do it. And the thoughts that he would encounter in there were like Old Testament prophets and these beings, like Enoch told him, like, you think where in your head we predate you. Basically, this is an interface, right? And he sort of uses the metaphor of the forest for it. So we have something like, which is this term we might touch on in a minute, stuff that is something like what happened to Marcus, what happens in the Amazon, what happens with an Aboriginal Australian understanding of how dream works. So we're in this situation where there is an understandable dissatisfaction with even like it's just untenable to live with this theory of mind we've inherited and a way of being that is deeply destructive to human happiness and the so-called environment and the rest of it. And it's a question of like, what are the things, how does one get out of that? Well, where does one go instead? And the jumping out of it into, like you can't declare yourself, unless you literally marry into the tribe and so on, you can't just like declare yourself a Shua medicine man or something, right? Because you find in the Shua Cosmovision something that's a better match for your own lived experience and, and what have you. And so the book is this exploration of the idea that animism doesn't exist outside Western thought. Like it's literally a category we invented in the 19th century to describe. And this always reminds me, and I couldn't put it in the book this way, but it always reminds me of the Skinner meme. Like, no, it is the children who are wrong. There's just something super hilarious that we invented this term to describe brown people who we decided couldn't tell the difference between thoughts and reality or dreams and reality. When in fact, <laughs> with the benefit of 150 years later, it turns out that their theory of mind was the better match for parapsychology, psi results, remote viewing, after death contact, all the rest of this stuff that we've had to kind of build out and like agglomerate onto this faulty theory of mind because we decided all that stuff was not true and then it starts to happen. And that's kind of, the book is the journey back to, well, why did we start using this terrible A word? And in fact, one of the stories that's not in the book, when I was up in Sydney at the State Library working on it, and I was talking to one of the indigenous curators up there, he's like, well, what's the book about? And I'm like, 
I'm writing a book about animism. And he's sort of, why? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was a really good discussion because he's like, you know, we don't use that word. And I'm like, yes, I do. But thank you for reminding me that I actually do need to make that explicit at the beginning, that the term is pejorative. The term is something we use to describe what we consider to be kind of like superstitious relic cultures that are before that enlightenment moment. And that, that whole thinking itself is part of the know it is the children who are wrong. And so the word is dangerous and electrifying because it's almost like you have to come to terms with it to stop using it. But like the only way out is through. And that's why I sort of sat with what the future, what the book after Starships was going to be. Because Starships is like the story of how we've got the past wrong. And then this one's a story of how we got the present wrong. <laughs> so no spoilers about what the third book's going to be about. Ah. Um, you can probably work that out. And that's kind of where the thinking is. Yeah, man. And it is worth noting that that is considered a condescending term outside of the West, but conspiracy theorist is also a demeaning term. Totally. And we can reclaim terms yeah. if we want to adopt them and transmutate them to use a provocative term. Well, so we have to stay with terms that still have energy. And I mean that in a psychological sense that like, why is this term, why does it have bite? Why does this term still have energy? Why does it make change? Because it's not done with its process yet, right? And conspiracy theorist is one of those terms like, why is that electrifying? Not just for us, although maybe not for us. But staying with the trouble, like this term still has more work to do. And this is a real big difference between stepping into, dare I say, an animist world and out of a machine world, is you and humans aren't the only things that have agency. So it's sort of like, why is this term so powerful now? And the same thing with animism, like even in sort of Western esotericism over the last 40 or 50 years, it's really only been in the last, and I'm partially to blame for it, six or seven years that it started to have currency and cachet again. People would use terms like pagan or, I don't know, idealist or whatever before. But the term has come back and it's a dangerous term. And it's a term from like, I mean, depending on how you feel about the world and, and so on. But like we were never more racist as a society than we were, let's say, in the mid 1800s. America still having literal slavery. But the, the, how we knew things about the world was never in human history more racist. And that's where this term comes from. And for it to come back and still be invitational and hypnotic in a way that I think the people who identify with it can't fully articulate means this term has work to do. And I think it's to do with that. I think it's like, how did we come to this term in the first place? And that's kind of part of the story of the book, I think. Yes, yeah, so true. And on the subject of thoughts, I like this quote that you include from David Lynch, where you say, in Catching the Big Fish, David Lynch writes about the process of asking your ideas what to do next. If you stay true to the idea, it tells you everything you need to know, really. You just keep working to make it look like that idea looked, feel like it felt, sound like it sounded, and be the way it was. And it's weird, because when you veer off, you sort of know it. You know when you're doing something that is not correct because it feels incorrect. And that resonated with me a lot because it does feel like the story of how the Higher Side Chats found its footing. I wouldn't bring this up if it was anyone else because it's just such a personal thing here. But 
I have that well-worn story of doing mushrooms with comedians at the Comedy Store condo and having a quote-unquote bad trip, which caused me to pivot towards what THC is today and leave the comedians alone to do their own thing. And I have said that the mushroom told me that, but when I reflect on it now, it really did feel like the spirit of the higher side chats itself saying, you're not doing me right. And the mushrooms are kind of what allowed me to hear that rather than the thing that told me it. I don't know, maybe that's a more accurate description or such a subtle thing that it doesn't matter much. But to me, it was profound. No, it's excellent. And it's a really good and essential distinction because it was in conversation with the mushroom that you encountered. And so it's funny, you were talking about Mataferro's PAR project, going back to New Zealand, as being Field of Dreams. What isn't Field of Dreams, mm. right? That's sort of the point. Not everything is, but all of these projects are. And I'm sure it's because you have, it can be frustrating for people who attempt to assist you in the high side chats journey, whether it's long-suffering better Hobbs or whoever, like, you know, web developers and so on, that it's very difficult to give something like a five-year plan because it's like, this isn't how this works. <laughs> like we don't have language for how this works because we don't think how this works is real, but it is. It's like the only thing that's real. And so thinking is being with thoughts. It is an active process, right? And so what we call animism is an academic attempt to encounter other ways of thinking. And there's a really cool Graham Townsley, and this is about shamanism, like Yaminahua shamanism specifically. Let's just not split those hairs and say it's about animism. In the book, he says, shamanism is an ensemble or an assembly of techniques for knowing. So shamanism is in a collection of ideas that are known, that are understood. So Catholicism has catechisms. Catholicism is God as Trinity and the church and all that kind of stuff. Like it literally has its Nicene Creed. It's like, this do be Catholic. So it's a collection of ideas. Shamanism, Yamanahua shamanism, was an assembly of techniques or an ensemble of techniques for knowing. So that is dadari or deep listening. So another way of saying that is shamanism is paying attention to your thoughts when you are encountering certain plants and what comes up, because what comes up has some kind of relevance. And it is also a capacity to taste which plants would be poisonous and which ones aren't. And so we think like, so what is animism then? What is shamanism? It's an assemblage of techniques for knowing rather than a collection of ideas. We want it to be Catholicism. We want it to be like, oh, there's like an upper world and a middle world and a lower world. And we have sky spirits and we have this. That's what's found at the end of some animisms, right? And that's the kind of pivot in the book. Because when you realize that it's an assembly of techniques for knowing, then your process of how you co-create and are custodian to higher side chats, it's clearer now. It's not even like, sorry, it's kind of my weird process. I'm a bit of a stoner. I don't really think about a three-year plan. Any of that stuff is not right because actually you do know, but you don't know it with thinking the direction this stuff has to go. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And so after reading your book, I actually tried to apply deep listening and listening to ideas to our interview itself, knowing it was coming up. And I treated the book and the cosmos like living beings and before falling asleep, asked what ideas in it are the best to focus on 
when we talk. And with a baby, of course, I'm waking up five times a night. So I'm getting a lot of time in that half awake, half asleep state, which is where these things are loudest, they say. And the loudest phrase in my head was technology is habitat. It was screaming at me, basically. But elaborate on that phrase and how it could apply to some of the things we like to talk about, like even UFOs. Well, yeah, because I could hear some of that thinking in your questions to um, uh, the good Richard Dolan in, in a recent episode, depending on when this one was coming out. Yes. So technology is habitat is an event that myself and Diana walsh Basilka, who wrote American Cosmic, had at the Guggenheim in whatever that was, 2019? Yeah, end of 2019. And it emerged from some discussions in the jungle during my first dieta on ayahuasca. And there were people there who kind of like could arrange funding and work with the Guggenheim and, and all the rest of it. And we were trying to look for where we can situate a discussion in between the sort of animism, now that we can kind of use that term, that you will encounter in the Amazon and contemporary ufology. And we sort of landed on, because Diana's book is great, Diana's great. This idea that technology is habitat is that, and this is how starships sort of flows into animistic, is that if thoughts are beings, then the sort of uneven distribution of novelty and inspiration and new thoughts across a kind of like human timeline takes on a different meaning. And I was always, I mean, the time wave zero stuff that Terence McKenna came up with isn't right at all, except for the fact that he looked and could see that the uneven distribution of novelty when it comes to technological complexity on planet Earth is weird. And in particular, from sort of like the 1820s to this like dramatic increase to the sort of late 20th century when he was still alive, you look at it and go, that is unprecedented. And so what's going on there and the story of starships is that there are thought beings that for whatever reason, and we don't know, are trying to get us into space as fast as possible. And we get closer and closer to that the more we entangle our consciousness with stars and sky countries. And everyone who listens to high side chats would be aware of the sort of Crowleyan influence on the 20th century American space program. And I know you were talking to Richard about similar esoteric ideas being involved in the development of the Soviet space program and so on. You find, for whatever reason, and literally we don't know, this idea that these thoughts or these beings of inspiration have agendas that are their own. And we're kind of, I don't necessarily think it's a trap. I think it's more nuanced than that. And so with technology's habitat, we kind of looked at the idea that the more the technological complexity develops along certain directions, the more kind of beings we become aware of or come into relation with, right? And so and this, we've kind of had an uneasy understanding of technology and its risk from the very beginning of time. So even the story of the apple in the Garden of Eden is a technological one in its own way, right? Because you, you make a fundamental change that alters your perception. But I think the best one for the West is that the Greeks did have a mode of thinking called techne, which was like an entirely separate mode of thinking. And I have in, in Pieces of Eight, which one of my other books, if you do kind of like a survey of creation myths around the world of how humans came to be and came to have their status, it's technologically based. We're given things by the spirits at the end of like the Campfire's Edge, another presentation I did, that alters 
our relationality to the rest of the cosmos. So we might be given hunting technology or, or something falls from heaven that changes how we can do things and all of a sudden we have metallurgy. And in the, well, what is now the Christian tradition, but was obviously Jewish to start with, we have the earlier versions of where technology and evil and misfortune came into the world in the same series of contact events, which is, of course, the story in Enoch, famously, but like the story of the Watchers and they're sort of entangling with the daughters of man, but basically sky beings teaching us stuff, sometimes in exchange for sex. But when you hear a story like that, what is actually happening is a way of saying that this process of delivering technology and ideas and all the rest of it is relational and it changes us. And we get further and further into relation with these kind of beings, right? So consider that the watches taught the daughters of man the skills of witchcraft. So like, let's say herb law, which means the watches taught the daughters how to procure and use entheogens, which are used to communicate with beings like this. And so technology's habitat is kind of widening that out to this idea that once you allow for some thoughts to be some kind of beings, then the development isn't even the right word. The ongoing relationship of humans and technology becomes certainly more interesting and certainly more fraught. And I know you're talking to Richard about this, that is there some sense, maybe I agree with you, I don't think greys are future humans, but is there something, and it's not just Terence who thought this idea that the UFO is the transcendental object at the end of time. You have Yuri Geller thinking, believing that he was in contact with a human-made supercomputer in the future who's kind of like guiding development. All of these attempts to understand are a way of saying like there is something about our thoughts when it comes to technology that is pulling us into a specific kind of future. And at this point in the timeline, and I don't think it reduces to good or bad, but at this point in the timeline, we don't actually, you just have to sit with that. You just have to sit with, once you realize that some thoughts are beings, more stuff is going on. Mm. Yeah, I find this stuff super interesting. Just kind of like the example of the Watchers and Herbology, there's another little anecdote. Like we've talked about John D and the angels a thousand times, but what gets missed that you point out in the book is that apparently Uriel gave John D a crystal. And that is what set all those things in motion is that it was given to him. Like this technology was given to him. It just makes me think about even Tesla apparently has this story of hearing something that seemed to be calling him. And Maybe it is just as simple as you say, something is trying to get us into space and our hierarchical thinking says, well, we do the summoning. And in reality, we can also be summoned as, as yep. actually true too. So we should probably reorient ourselves and wonder what's calling us. And in particularly, if we're going to talk magic, like in the West, because of our, and you know, Grimoire magic is very powerful. And if you do it right, it works really well. but. It is that unidirectional summoning, and it relies on the status of a male, but like a human man as the sort of favored creation of God, so that even angels will respond when you call them up, right? So it's built into this idea that will work, but it's a subset <laughs> of, shall we say, spirit interaction as a field of global study around the planet. Where, and I, I would say healthier and more robust ones, you'll find this in, say, the Afro-Caribbean traditions where 
So a very good friend of mine here in Tasmania is a Brazilian and part of Candomblé as a result. And so the spirits will choose who they want to be in kind of like initiated into their governance. And we don't have that. We sort of do. We kind of like used to pick patron saints when we would you know, get baptized and so on. But if you move from a, like you move into a relational model and all of this stuff opens up and gets more interesting, but these are really good example. And, and that was, we have prior to the famous metamaterial of the last few years, and that is in there because like Diana and I spoke about it at the Guggenheim, we have a very long history of being given things. And that's literally what, this is kind of like hyperdimensionally true rather than historically true. But the apple is a very good example of that. The proverbial apple is an example of like, we get given things that kind of unspool <laughs> throughout history. Yeah. And um, D got given the crystal. You will find similar ideas when we think about UFOs and implants. So Paul LaFolle, I don't think you ever had him on your show. I met him just before he died in London. And he had multiple implants that were in his teeth. And he had like professional dentists look at it. And it was kind of like that metamaterial stuff, this incredible American artist, like one of my favorite ever. And he was an experiencer back when it was kind of hokey back when it was kind of like, you know, butt stuff and abductions, right? But he was adamant and he had stuff removed from him. But if you think of, so the Aboriginal English term for shaman, this is a simplification, but go with me, is clever man. So um, that kind of medicine man, medicine woman idea is called a clever man. And you find in, say, some Western Australian, I guess, like initiatory or in descriptions of initiatory processes for clever men that they would have crystals installed in them during initiation but also by the spirits themselves so you actually get implants that are also stones that allow for this kind of communication and d was given the same thing so because the book is about comparison and how to do comparison in a way that is non-extractive when you drop down so rather than looking around the world for a collection of shared ideas or claims about reality you actually look for a collection of doings. And so I use, there's an Aboriginal academic, Tyson Yonkaporto, who talks about, and I think I mentioned it on this show, the difference between products of thought and ways of thinking. And so a product of thought isn't usually universally found around the world. And that would be the catechism. So the products of thought that get you to, I believe, in God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Church, the, the, the Trinity, blah, 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 blah. Those are all products of thought. They come out of a way of thinking, which is a sort of four-century encounter with an attempt to build the Bible out of various texts and patristics and so on. But there's a way of thinking, which is some of these words are true and some of them aren't, and I'm going to put the true ones together, and that's going to generate thoughts. But you drop down to the way of thinking, and it looks different. So globally, if you do a survey of ways of thinking rather than products of thought, you find the delivery of technology and the use of stones and technology for spirits. That's global. What we encounter when that happens is a product of thought, and that's culturally bound. So that's a kind of crucial difference. And I think, I know, we'll see how the book goes, but I think it took a magician to attempt that, to, <laughs> to attempt comparison on that level. Because half the time I'm looking for tech, half the time I'm like, crystals, you say? And where I can kind of approach that with my own sort of experiential understanding of how stone beings might be used in ceremony. And it allows a survey on the level of doing that I think reveals something, hopefully, uh, that maybe hasn't been revealed before. 
Yeah, man, lots to chew on there. But I sorry, this is kind of you're you're the first. As I said, <laughs> this is the first interview. So sorry, everyone. Like, uh, if you need to take a breath, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a pause button. Exactly. That's the beauty of the internet. Play it at point eight rather than one point two for once. I must try that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> yes, man. But <laughs> this has been a lot of fun, and a couple of points in the whole wrap up portion of what we do. You know, I hope to join you both at the farm and in the jungle one day, if I ever feel better about international travel restrictions. But on that subject, you are breaking out of the prison colony and you're joining Chris Knowles at Miguel Connors Astronosis event in Cancun. You mentioned it, but it was in the plus show. So for everybody's benefit, let them know what's happening. Sounds like a good time. I wish I could swing it, but tell people about this and what you call the moth shot, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. So... Let's start with the moth shot because this is funny. And people who aren't premium members have been chasing and around different shows going like, tell me about your experience with Novavax. But um, Novavax is a non-mRNA platform injection. I've got to be careful with the words in case you want this on your, uh, in case you want this on YouTube, right? And this is how health works in 2022. CRISPR is used to modify a moth virus so that it can have the spike protein balls attached to it if you know, and I'm not, and this is kind of like the veganism thing. Please do not come for Greg about whether viruses exist. But, <laughs> so that's how it's built. And then it's mixed. The adjuvant, so the thing that agitates you when it gets injected is saponin made from a Chilean tree bark. So I've been joking that it's practically organic. It's like moth and tree, right? Um, but it isn't the mRNA platform. So I view it as two doses of poison, which the first one has been through and I'm still here. And that's to, I can get out of Fortress Australia without the shots, but I can't get into Fortress America, which is basically the only way I can get to Mexico. So it's this sort of funny world but for people who are asking. Apparently, it's had provisional approval in the US as well. It's available in countries like Iran and Indonesia, and it has been approved in the EU, and I think it's available there. But I've been calling it the moth shot, and I've been trying to get moth shot started. I think it's funny. It I is. Think there's clot shot, there's moth shot. And the product came out so late, and I think this is deliberately, like Australia actually bought 51 million doses before we had any Pfizer in the country at all. And because, as most Western governments appear to work for Pfizer, they just held off on approving it until we got to like whatever ludicrous injection level we're at now, like 95%. And the 5% that's left, like, which are a big bunch of my friends down here, are like, I'm not getting anything. I'm never getting any of these things. So this, this shot has showed up where I'm like, well, what about the moth shot? And they're like, no, you didn't what are you not understanding? I'm not getting any. And I actually really respect that. I'm certainly not doing it. I think as with the majority of people who've been injected, I, I didn't do it because I wanted to. I did it so that I could get to Mexico. And in, like my spirit said, this wouldn't kill me. So I'll stick with that. But that's the, the moth shot story for people who are looking for it. And yeah, as for Miguel's event, utterly unrelated. <laughs> he There's a two, three-day conference over the equinox in Playa del Carmen, March 20 to 22, if I got the dates right. I'm, I'm showing up a couple of days earlier if Joseph and Vladimir don't get in the way of international travel in the next couple of weeks. And it should be really fun. Chris Knowles is there. I'll be there. Miguel's always a good time. And it's I forget who the other guests are. But I'll be talking on indigenous experiences of time and obviously how that relates to the stars. Very looking forward to being out of the country for the first time in two years. And there may be other events on that trip that we can kind of wink at there, Greg. Yes, yes. Okay. 
I didn't know if we wanted to say it explicitly, but it seems like we might be trying to do something. And I do love the the moth shot thing. I mean, it's a compromise that's fair and logical in your situation. I'm not getting anything either, but your experience has been a little harsher than mine, to say the least. So we do what we have to do. And I guess, sorry, one more point, but it seems like you've done a lot of preparation for dealing with a bit of incoming toxification. And one of those things is turpentine. And I actually just recorded an interview with Dr. Jennifer Daniels about this very subject. So we don't need the full story of it, but it would be nice to hear what she had to say reinforced with a positive review if you can give one. Sure. I didn't use it in the context of the moth shot, but like the other health journey I'm on in the beginning. So I did a month of, amongst other things, daily turpentine, and I've got an infrared sauna now, and there's a couple of weeks of coffee enemas in there and like beginning of the year, full detox stuff. And I will tell you, particularly on an empty stomach, I didn't do the sugar thing like she did, because I kind of deep dove into Soviet research, actually, that for the better part of the 20th century, there are different turpentine treatments for like heart complaints, like angina and so on. And the Soviets used it as a cleaner for blood poisoning if you take it on an empty stomach. So like build up to the five mil, as she says. And I did that. I did like the first day of one mil and the next day of five and stayed on five from there. And it was fine. And it definitely was that kind of detox experience. I think she's correct. Don't do it. And this is one of the things the coffee enema process helped with. Don't do it unless you have three, you can be sure you'll have like three bowel movements a day because it is taking stuff out of your system and moving it through, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a proper detox. But yeah, I know it sounds crazy. And bear in mind, there are some petroleum-based products that are sold as turpentine that are deadly and don't drink them. But it's a natural, it's literally basically essential oil of pine. And people maybe don't realize that, but it's literally a natural medicine. And Yes, it, you know, as with anything else, neurofin, whatever, in a high enough dose, it will kill you. But she seems to be right about it being a, uh, a medicine that was available to the slaves, which is a thing that's kind of like evidence-free, but she got from her grandparents who knew slaves, as in because of family, et cetera, et cetera, right? And also, I've looked at the Merck manual, which like you've had Dr. Kaufman on before. It's in there and it's got dozens of things that it listed for, but it's a potent detox option. And yeah, I did it because it was too intriguing not to, right? I'm like, mm -hmm. all right, let's take this seriously. And yeah, I did, uh, I did a turpentine detox for all of January. And I would actually think about it. I used a different process when I, around the moth shot and I'll do the same again, right? So I took the horse pills and my daily supplementation looks a lot like, like with quercetin and whatever, looks a lot like the remediation suggestions that are over the counter anyway. Like I actually have a pretty good supplement regime. So I added some moth shot to it like the day of and a couple of, uh, not moth shot, horse pill, um, <laughs> the day of and a couple of days after. And I'm going to do the same thing for the second shot. And I also have vasodilators. So I took that kind of stuff that is like an anticoagulant. So it literally prevents the blood from clotting because I'm like, you know what? The majority of clot deaths are within the first three days after either shot, like 70 or so percent of them. So I took anti-clotting medication for those three days, even though the moth shots, because they don't have mRNA platform, haven't caused any clotting in trials. But if, if people are, are looking at making the, <laughs> the decision I made, that's some recommendation for you. And I based it on the idea that the horse pills, as far as any of this works, they appear to literally 
neutralize the spike protein, which is the pathogenic part of it, right? So I'm like, well, I'm putting, if I'm putting spike protein in me at the same time as horse pills, maybe they'll balance out. And I'm here to tell the tale. So who knows? <laughs> yeah, I really think the key, if there is some kind of shady agenda in there, is probably avoiding the mRNA stuff and to have other options. It seems like you are just dealing with a little bit of toxicity and you can prepare for that and the body can deal with that. Yeah. Like, cause everyone has to do that. I'm not anti-vax, blah, blah, blah. I tell you what, I almost am after these last two years, but speaking of the yeah. jungle, like I took, you have to, I took the yellow fever shot to get into Peru. More specifically, you're not allowed back into Australia, of course, if you've been to the Amazon and you haven't taken your yellow fever shot. Right. So in a similar vein, I'm like, listen, if I was prepared to do that, I view the moth shot to get to Mexico in a similar way. It's certainly everyone, and we've been upfront about this from the very beginning, everyone, I believe, should be health sovereign and make the decisions you want to make. And that was, <laughs> that was the one I made. Mm -hmm. Crazy though it may seem. Yes, and uh, I'm just glad we could talk about the turpentine thing a little bit because it does have all these crazy warnings on it and not to rehash the entire Dr. D Jennifer Daniels interview, but I heard about that from you and then heard her talk about it and then sought out an interview with her. So it comes full circle that these two interviews will be back to back. Nice. And another quick little anecdote with our pediatrician, you know, we talk about the vaccine issue. We picked her because of her allowing us to do what we want with the vaccine issue, which is ignore it. And uh, she said that a lot of parents, they are wishy-washy on it, but then they decide, oh, they want their kids to go to school. And here in California, obviously there's a whole Rolodex of shots you must get. So they get them all together and she has to tell the parents, whoa, 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 hold on. And she has a, a detox protocol that she tries to get the parents to give to the kids before they do all these shots. And to me, I just thought, how stupid. So you think these shots can be harmful so you don't give them to your kid. But then when your kid is a going to kindergarten age, you want to do it all at once? I mean, I guess they're a little bit more built up so they could maybe resist any potential damages, but it seems like backwards logic to jam them all together. But at least I'm saying that you're not the only one who has a detoxification protocol when uh, administering or taking vaccines. So one of the things that I think Del Bigtree got right, because he's, he's a very optimistic man, right? But one of the things I think he got right was like this process of, because he, remember, I think he was on the show, your show? I can't remember. Yeah. No, it was somewhere else I was listening to him, maybe his own. When warp speed was announced, he's like, this process isn't going to work and it's going to end the vaccine industry, which is obviously something he would want, or at least make it very optional is <laughs> probably a fair thing to say. And it didn't in the short term, right? Because we actually watched, as Pfizer always does, fraudulent safety data and all the rest, a complete scam to roll it out and make billions of dollars, as it kind of always is. But over the longer term, I think untold millions of parents around the West are looking at this whole industry differently. And, you know, we have to, because it's been such, especially for people like, you know, in Australia or Austria or Canada or wherever, it's been such a god-awful couple of years. We have to look for like, well, what, what goods are coming out of this? And one of them is no one, I hope, is going to look at, no one's going to be terrified into big pharma compliance in quite the same way ever again, I think. Mm. Yes. Cheers to that. I'm right there with you and hoping that that is the case. And so in terms of what you got going on lately, it is all about the book, Animistic. 
but you do also have a new course on protection and malefica, which also flips a lot of perceptions and words regarding what is protection and what is malefica from different perspectives. Just before we go, how would you plug that course? Because it is all about that uh, recurring revenue in the subscription world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it's one of the kind of funny things that's emerged over the last couple of years is that the, the premium members vote on a course. And it always ends up being like oddly, the first course of the year, we do one every quarter, oddly and creepily predictive. And whilst you can listen to my forecast show with Austin, where I say explicitly Ukraine war in Q1, which is happening, it's kind of interesting that we're talking about protection and almost like magical attack at a time when protection is both personally and, and kind of like globally front of mind. And it's one of those weird kind of unconscious things. Part of it is my fault because I put those two courses together as a part of uh, those two words together. So as a part of the voting thing, I kind of have a short list based on what everyone's kind of voted on in the previous thing. And protection magic kept coming up and Malefica and curse work kept coming up. And I'm like, they're sort of in my head, the one course. So we stuck them together and we stuck them together to allow, and it's been fun to go on this journey with people. Those who are in the magical world who will say, I will literally never do Malefica, so I'm just going to do the protection part and not the other, is to get people to understand or sit with the idea that maybe counter magic is its own kind of, like, is there a way you can avoid it? This kind of comes back to the spinach trying to kill you. Is there a way you can avoid, like, is protection magic or, or reversal magic, right? Like sending bad magic back away from you. Are you cursing someone when you do that? And it's, if you actually, again, if you look around the world outside of the West, the answer is often a yes. And that doesn't mean do it, but that does mean there's a really interesting philosophical and metaphysical journey for people to go on, whether they do magic or not, about what you think the difference between protection and malefica is. Because it's all about like being in the world. It's all about taking up space. And it's been really, really fun. And, and so far, so good. People have been really enjoying it. Yeah, it seems really synergistic with the new book, for sure and just a wild thought, but I wonder if I could ask the egregore of the higher side chats that I seem to have uh, helped nourish to court guests that I can't seem to court on my own from the other side. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think on that for sure. But um, yes, man, well, always a pleasure. You really did kill it with the book. Cheers to the road ahead. I wish I could join you in Cancun, but maybe I'll see you in Austin, Texas. Maybe. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Thanks very much. And boom goes the dynamite. You know I love having Gordon here, and today was no exception. I learned a lot from his latest book. It got me thinking about so many things differently. But we recorded this last week, and just the other day, he dropped a presentation-slash-podcast episode called Advice for Professional Astrologers During an Apocalypse. It's about two hours, and anyone who wants more Gordon should check that out right away. You can even think of it as an extension to this by pretending it starts with me asking, so how would you frame up the context around this Ukraine situation? Because we know that when we see this sort of coordination and full court press from every cultural figure of the West and this weird corporate virtue pile on of canceling Russia, something is up. 
because that is largely what his presentation is about. And I think a THC audience is smart enough to know that the media, politicians, and cultural mouthpieces who all synced up their lies about COVID over the last two years are not now giving us the truth about the Russia and Ukraine thing. At a base level, we should be able to say that, right? Well, there's an interview with Russian expert Gilbert Doctorow on the Tom Woods show. And I asked Mr. Doctorow to do THC, and he wrote back saying that he wasn't interested based on the other topics we've covered, and that's a real shame. But you can seek that interview out yourself, or it is the top pinned post before this drops on the THC Telegram channel. And this is not about pro-Ukraine versus pro-Russia. Don't get sucked into such simplistic thinking. I'm on the side of the elite and the bankers and the military profiteers not sending tens of thousands of young people to die over their dick swinging. That's the side I'm on. But basically, in a nutshell, it seems like all the information I'm seeing, this interview included, says that the globalist establishment has been using Ukraine to needle at Putin for a long time. So this isn't some sudden invasion by big scary Russia and bad man Putin. There's a ton more nuance than that. And if you've been paying attention, we have seen a lot of wag the dog style emotional footage that turned out to be completely fabricated in the last couple of weeks. And couple that with Putin being removed from the WEF's partner's website, which is clearly damage control. And there's a lot going on, but this crisis could actually become the path to a world war, and that's very serious. And when you get swept up in supporting Ukraine, well, there's a lot of material out there that looks like the Ukraine is a government captured by the globalists and actual Nazis. I know that sounds bold, but check out Gordon's video and this Gilbert Doctorow interview, and it becomes pretty clear. So be careful what you're rallying behind. Because what we really need, as unlikely as it is, is for the people who are hell-bent on starting a world war to actually negotiate away from one. But what really stuck with me from the Doctorow interview was that he said that Russia recently presented its new cutting-edge nuclear sub-technology, and the U.S. completely ignored it. And this Russian historian was very clear that he would not be surprised if in the next few weeks we saw these subs pop up along the east coast of the U.S. aimed at our cities, trying to sober up the American people as to how bad this can get. I'm not trying to fearmonger. I'm passing along some information. And yeah, it's a bold prediction, but it comes from a Russian historian that won't come on this show because we're too out there. So consider the source. And prepare yourself. Make sure you have extra cash on hand and extra groceries. You should already be getting your high-quality meat from a producer locally outside of the industrial system. Probably your water, too. Again, not trying to overhype, not trying to engage in fear porn. But I can't hear something like that and not tell you guys. Even if I have to shoehorn it in at the end of a two-hour interview about something else. It's relatable because of Gordon's latest presentation, but still. 
things can turn on a dime and we want to use our counterculture knowledge to be better positioned than the masses who always mock us, right? So I went and got cash out of the bank this morning before recording this and let me tell you, it was pretty clear that the teller was instructed to persuade people away from taking out cash. I mean, this is pretty much word for word how it went, but she asks, well, why are you taking out this sum of cash? And I say, I'm paying a contractor and trying to get some money for a big trip. Well, won't the contractor take a cashier's check? <laughs> I'm not really sure. I just told him I'd get cash. Well, the cashier's check is insured. Cash isn't always the safest. Well, that's all good because I'm just going to pay him cash because I said I would. Well, do you want to call him and see if he'd prefer a cashier's check? No, I don't want to call him while I'm in line at the bank. I really am in a bit of a hurry, and I just want to grab what I came here to get and get moving, if that's all right. I mean, that's a real dialogue that I just had, trying to get even a modest amount of cash out of the bank. And it was a bit concerning. <laughs> Definitely a new experience. But I'm going to try to get a good guest to come here and talk to us about these things. But I really have nothing about it on the books right now. But that is some preliminary info and some personal security advice that I just don't think should wait. You know how things can get creepy around the Ides of March, you know, that's coming up. It could be pretty intense. We know they like their numbers and their dates. And I was thinking about this too, but... You know, when Ross Ben did his astrology forecast, he called this year a glimpse of grace. And in terms of COVID restrictions, they do seem to be all but gone at this point. I would say the personal prison aspect has certainly let up. But a glimpse of grace suggests an easing up in the middle of a tough time sandwich because the grace is temporary. So I'd imagine the next two years could be as oppressive as the last two, but probably in different ways with different justifications. Just something to think about, and I'm sure my tone at this point does not really match the interview you just listened to, but I can't keep that stuff to myself. And I also wanted to throw out, <laughs> yes, Gordon and I are thinking about doing a joint event on June 25th in Austin, Texas, but we are struggling to find a venue. We've seen many great venues, and we can't really get responses from the ones that we've inquired with. We really just want somewhere that's on-brand and a bit counterculture-esque, where we can have drinks and maybe get a food truck to show up. And I didn't think this would be so hard in Austin, but it's not going smoothly. So if you are in Austin and can help us out with this particular problem, please email me, thehiresidechats at gmail.com and we can get this event and the venue locked in. Because I don't really want to miss out on that. I think it'd be a lot of fun. But in terms of this episode, a critique of solutionism is a good thing to focus on and is pretty resonant right now. Solutionism is colonial thinking. What can we do to fix this? Well, maybe this actually doesn't require your meddling. Actually, you should just stop meddling and quote-unquote, solving for a bit and just breathe along with the rest of the cosmos. And I hemmed and hawed about even saying 
anything to this effect, but the things we talked about today can be a tough conversation when we have all this woke, liberal, Antifa craziness going on because some of the terms and foundational ideas are adjacent to that stuff and it can be triggering and it can be hard to separate out. And it seems like Gordon really is trying to walk a tightrope between people who have knee-jerk reactions to anything that sounds like liberal progressivism as expressed lately and the actual liberal progressives who have already decided that they're right and they're not really open to any critique. But I would say there are a lot of core problems that need to be addressed where the people who realize that are spun off in an unproductive direction. And that is what I think we are seeing in a big way. And I would say that just because there's a highly manipulated group of people doing it wrong doesn't mean there isn't a nuanced point in there worth unpacking. So please, I just, I hope we all have the sense to navigate that somewhat thorny territory. But materialism, the thinking of everything as dead, this is like a key philosophy to seed before you're going to exploit the earth and the people who live on it. So we're trying to unravel the damage done by the mindset of living under the influence of a psychopathic empire. And the thoughts around thoughts and ideas were great. It's not that some of these perspectives were completely new to me. Gordon and I have talked about some of them before in previous episodes to an extent, but maybe it was just the revisiting of the perspective through his book or that the phrasing was just right. But yeah, ideas are alive and in the astral, and we are actually hearing them constantly. And I think that example of executing some thing, some work of art, or even a new shed or a song, and having the execution be grossly inferior to how it seemed in your head. We'll go back to that mental picture, really dig into it. Why is the physical execution so bad? And how can you work it and get it closer to that perfect mental picture? That is a skill set. It is a muscle that we need to work out. And it's so simple, but to me, it was just a really useful template. I mean, even Joseph Farrell has been here talking about old art and statues and that art was not thought of as subjective. It wasn't open to interpretation. It was about drawing things down from the astral, from the imaginal, and may the best representation of such perfection win. The talent was the execution between idea and physical representation, and it being a bit self-evident which artists were getting closer to the divine. I mean, with THC, when people have interviewed me and commended me for sticking with it, I've always said, hey, we should all be looking for progress on our thing and not get hung up on it not being perfect from the beginning. But what's progress? That would be constantly moving towards the idea that came to you and moving towards depicting it better than you are currently. I hope that makes sense. But hey, that's why Elon Musk builds rockets, kids. There is some pesky, nagging idea calling him to the stars. And I wonder how it got there. <sighs> but really good stuff, as it always is with Gordon. This book took my understanding a level deeper on things like how our ideas are alive, 
and how one can talk to plants and how spirits interact with the landscape. It's actually simpler than I thought, and maybe I was getting in my own way of understanding. So I'm hoping I can keep these things in mind going forward, no pun intended. But, you know, it also makes it a bit more obvious why everyone stresses meditation as the first step in this direction, right? And why every guided meditation says to observe your thoughts like clouds floating by in your mind's eye. You can see how the things we talked about today build off of that kind of a foundation. And I certainly like the idea of consulting with the THC egregore to go put a bug in the ear of those guests who won't take me seriously. But anyway, in the Plus Show, as always, we go harder and deeper, and we talked about nuances of the elite's use of esoteric symbols, sky people and star maps, shamanism and UFOs, fallen angels and favoring humanity, AI and habitat, spirits, landscape and war, manifestation and time, and of course, the most animist diet and how your spinach is trying to kill you. Sign up for Plus because the Plus shows are always better and you deserve it. And if you're already a Plus member, I sincerely thank you. It's getting harder to just exist as a vessel for counter opinions to official reality. And your support is extremely important. As important as I think our guests are and knowledge is. So thanks as always. As for the events on the calendar at HiresideMeetups.com. You guys are finding the others on March 11th at the New York City United Truther Meetup. It's happening at Cafe 28. On March 12th, we got the Jefferson City Meetup in Jefferson City, Missouri at the Last Flight Brewery. Also on March 12th, there is a Scottsdale, Arizona two-year lockdown anniversary meetup at the Tally Ho Cocktail Lounge. And then an event that was proposed by someone who is calling the event the County Durham Shroom Alchemy and Permaculture Summit at the UK Gretna Green Hotel in County Durham, United Kingdom. If you're in that area, you can read the description on the website about the event, but it does look to be just an invitation for interesting conversation. But those are all very cool. I am so happy that Hireside listeners are uniting and finding each other. The screws are getting quite tight, and I don't think we should consider this over. And we should build better networks while we can. I want to try to help you, and that's the only way I can think of to do it. Find people around you that you can talk to and agree with. These are heavy times. Even just in the week since me and Gordon recorded this, I feel quite concerned for the immediate future and the next five years or so. Let's not put all the weight on just the next 30 days. There's a long arc here. And as we did with COVID, we're going to oscillate between following the threads, deconstructing them, and also going completely off the radar to unrelated things that are also interesting. But if you become plus members or stay plus members, I will keep fighting the good fight and deal with any ramifications that come from doing that. And we will reach the promised land together, right? But let Gordon know if you liked hearing from him today. I appreciate him letting us have the first crack at an interview about the new book. 
and get the new book, Animistic, if it calls to you, and take care of you and yours. Much love out there. Keep your head on straight. Your move, agents of empire, mental construct controllers, and elite level parasitic exploiters of the earth. Your fucking move. Well, they tie that yellow ribbon around the oak tree. They've worn out all the prayer in their hearts. All along thought they were rooting for the home team. As they're sent to the game and torn apart. We twist this tourniquet upon the pipeline. That he carries all is another show complete remember as much as you enjoyed this which is just the free first hour i hope you'll become a plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews you also can engage with other plus members in the comments and the forums and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions i get which is where can i find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show well they are free downloads for plus members too and without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. 
We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box. And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me and cheers to a better tomorrow.